Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who are the people? What were they like? How did they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on episode 74 of the Fan of History podcast, 10,000 BC. Previously on the Fan of History, we looked at prehistory from 200,000 to 10,000 BC, and that's where we're starting today. This script is written by Shane Soresby. Thank you, Shane. And it's read by me, the Fan of History. Uh, We start our episode 2,000 years earlier than 10,000 BC. It's 12,000 BC in the midst of a warm and moist interstadial known as the Alleröd Oscillation. Temperatures began to increase in the northern hemisphere, leading to proliferation in forest environments which contained birch, spruce, pine and juniper. Hunters used the cover of these forests to hunt red deer, moose elk and beaver rather than the mammoth and the saber-toothed tiger that were previously hunted during the cooler periods of the ice age. In the last episode we covered some of the cultures that had evolved during this warm period in Europe such as the Asilian, a late Magdalenian culture in northern Spain and southern France, and the Federmesse culture that stretched from northern France to Poland and the Cresvellian culture in Britain. Now you would think that we have seen the back of the Ice Age, and you would be wrong. The warm interstadial period only lasted for 1,800 years before events in North America would have a drastic effect on the climate of the Northern Hemisphere. Since 28,000 BC, North America had been covered with a vast ice sheet during a period known as the Wisconsin Glaciation. As the ice sheet began to retreat northwards as a result of warmer temperatures, it created a vast proglacial lake 
known as Lake Agassiz, named after the Swiss-born biologist and geologist Louis Agassiz, who lived between 1807 and 1873. By 11,000 BC, the lake covered much of Manitoba, northwestern Ontario, northern Minnesota, eastern North Dakota and Saskatchewan, with a size of approximately 440,000 square kilometers, larger than any lake in the world today, almost exactly as large as my native country, Sweden, where I'm recording this. It's approximately 400,000 square kilometers. 200 years later, meltwater started to accumulate in the Red River Valley of North Dakota and Minnesota. As the water reached the top of the divide to the south, it drained into the ancestral Minnesota and Mississippi River systems, whilst at the same time the Laurentide Ice Sheet was located at the current U.S. and Canadian border. Known as the Lockhart Face, Lake Agassiz was estimated to be 758 feet deep, with the southern boundary being blocked by the big stone moraine. As the ice sheet continued to melt northwards, the lake found a new outlet along the Minnesota-Ontario border, entering into pro-glacial lake known as Lake Duluth. From Lake Duluth, the meltwater drained further south along the ancestral Sainte Croix and Mississippi River systems, before eventually entering into the Gulf of Mexico. In the meantime, during what is known as the Moorhead Phase, the depth of Lake Agassiz increased from an average of 758 feet to 846 feet. The result of this meltwater into the Gulf of Mexico and eventually into the North Atlantic would have an effect on the climate of the Northern Hemisphere, leading up to a period of approximately 1,000 years from 10,900 BC, known as the Younger Dryas. Temperatures in the northern hemisphere declined by between 2 to 6 degrees Celsius. And that, my friends, is a lot of temperature drop. Forests were replaced with glacial tundra in Scandinavia. Glaciation or increased snowfall occurred in mountain ranges around the world. More dust accumulated in the atmosphere from deserts in Asia. And increased drought occurred in the Levant, which would affect existing Natufian culture. From about 10,000 BC, in the midst of the Younger Dryas, the Clovis culture began to be replaced by more localized regional cultures. The most common held view for the end of the Clovis culture is that the decline in availability of megafauna, along with an increase in a less mobile population, that led to the diffusion of cultural traditions across North and Central America. The theory goes that the Clovis culture used long spears to overhunt and subsequently extinct species of megafauna, which included horses, direwolf, mammoth, mastodon and saber-toothed cats. What was left were much smaller animals. That included bison, moose, elk, grey wolf, caribou, grizzly bear, black bear, deer and mountain goat. The criticism of the overkill hypothesis was that the human population at that time was too small and not widespread enough to have been capable of such ecological damage. It does not mean that climate change scenarios would explain that the extinction was solely due to this, but it does suggest that a combination of both factors would help explain why such a large-scale extinction would have taken place. Now... 
As we know, the main theory for the cause of the Younger Dryas was the reduction or shutdown of the North Atlantic conveyor due to the influx of meltwater southwards from Lake Agassiz. However, there are a couple of other theories as to what may have caused the Younger Dryas. And here is another one, the comet that caused a new ice age. One competing theory is that there was an impact or airburst by a comet in North America in approximately 10,900 BC, which set areas of the continent on fire, disrupted the climate and caused the aforementioned extinction of the megafauna, as well as the decline of the Clovis culture. Proponents of this theory suggest that an airburst similar to the Tunguska event of 1908, but on a larger scale, would have disrupted the ecological balance of North America, impacting on existing animal and human life that had not been killed by the wildfires. The criticism of this theory is that no evidence of a population decline among the Paleo-Indians occurred in 10,900 BC. There is no evidence of wildfires across North America during the deglaciation, and sediments have been incorrectly dated due to contamination of modern carbon analysis, making it difficult to establish whether an impact had actually taken place. The other theory is that an eruption occurred at the Lakersee volcano in Rhineland-Palatinate in Germany. Ten Cubic kilometers of tephra were ejected into the atmosphere, causing temperature changes across the northern hemisphere. However, problem with this theory are that the eruption was actually dated to 203 years before the Younger Dryas began, and the amount of tephra ejected in the atmosphere would not be large enough to produce these extreme cold conditions. Returning to Lake Agassiz in North America, lake levels and drainage patterns continued to fluctuate during the Emerson phase in 9600 BC. Isostatic rebound combined with changes in the volume of meltwater and the closure of the outlet to the east increased the size of the northern end of the lake. Period of rainfall and meltwater input with the rate of evaporation may have existed for a short period of time, with the result that no significant outlet occurred during this phase, causing the lake to become static. At the end of the phase in 8630 BC, the sudden outlet that had caused the Younger Dryas effect had permanently closed replaced by the northwestern outlet through the Clearwater and Athabasca river systems after the ice that had originally covered this area had melted. The Emerson phase of Lake Agassiz would coincide with the end of the Younger Dryas period. We now enter into another warm interglacial period that has continued to this very day replacing the Pleistocene epoch that had been ongoing since 2.5 million years ago. The succeeding Holocene epoch would encompass the growth of the human species worldwide and lead to developments that would change our lives forever. However, that is getting ahead of ourselves, and we need to return back to the cold and look at what was happening in Europe. At the height of the Younger Dryas in 10,000 BC, a late upper Paleolithic culture known as Arnsburg emerged in north-central Europe, covering an area from south and west Scandinavia, north Germany, and western Poland, as well as vast stretches of land that are now located at the bottom of the North Sea and the Baltic Sea. One such settlement was located at Stelmor, 
near Hamburg in Germany. Occupied seasonally during October, the Arensburg culture used the earliest definite bow and arrow to hunt wild reindeer in tundra conditions containing arctic white birch and rowan. Archaeologists have also found remains of circles of stones that were possibly the foundation of teepees made of reindeer hides. Earliest traces of habitation in Randaberg in northern Norway and the Hensbacka group of western Sweden date to the transitional period from the Younger Dryas to the pre-boreal of the upcoming Holocene epoch in 9600 BC. Favorable living conditions and experience of seasonal occupation led to increased exploitation of maritime resources in more northern areas as a result of the retreat of the ice sheets back to the Arctic. In western Sweden, the dating of deposited bones indicated that there was no break in settlement continuity from the continental Arensburg culture with the rapid climatic change stimulating cultural change rather than immigration. This is now the period when the Paleolithic or the Old Stone Age comes to an end and is replaced by the Mesolithic, the Middle Stone Age. One such society benefiting from these improved conditions would be the Swiderian culture, a transitional Paleolithic-Mesolithic group that emerged originally in 11,000 BC. Most of the Swiderian population moved to the northeast at the end of the Pleistocene in 9500 BC, following the retreating tundra after the Younger Dryas. Radiocarbon dates proved that some of these groups persisted into the following pre-boreal period of the Holocene epoch. Unlike the Ahrensburg culture in Western Europe, the Swiderian culture were newcomers into Poland, attested to by a 300-year-long gap between the late Paleolithic and earliest Mesolithic occupation sites. For example, the earliest Mesolithic site near Otwok in western Poland outdates other Mesolithic sites in central northeast Poland by 150 years. Lack of good quality flint in Polish uh, in the Polish early Mesolithic proved that these new arrivals were not yet fully acquainted with the best local sources of flint. This culture would continue to thrive until 8200 BC when they would be succeeded by the Kunda culture. So we have seen what has happened in North America and Europe. Let's have a look at what was happening elsewhere during roughly this same time period. As mentioned in the previous episode, the Kebaran culture was an archaeological upper Paleolithic culture that emerged in the eastern Mediterranean in 18,000 BC that was named after its type site Kibara Cave south of Haifa in Israel. Now Shane feels that he needs to make a confession. He got the, got the dates wrong for the next culture to emerge. Originally he said that the Natufians emerged in 12,500 BC and lasted until 9,500 BC. That was completely wrong as this would have an impact on when the following culture emerged which we cover in the next episode and would have led to a thousand-year gap between the two cultures. The Natufian culture, an Epipaleolithic group, actually emerged in the Levant from 10,500 BC, so apologies for that. They were hunter-gatherers who foraged for food, such as wild cereals, 
legumes, almonds and pistachios and hunting gazelle, deer, wild boar and aurochs. These people were semi-sedentary, living part of the year in semi-subterranean settlements with dry stone foundations with a diameter of 3 to 6 meters, containing a central fireplace or hearth. The lifestyle of the Natufians changed as a result of drought conditions caused by the younger dryas. With wild cereals becoming fewer and fewer in the Levant, the Natufians had a choice to make. Now, as they were semi-sedentary, they could just up sticks and move to newer pastures. But there is some scarce evidence that a series of experiments were carried out by the Natufians or other hunter-gatherer groups that indicated the possible cultivation of early domesticated forms of wheat and barley. If so, then this is possibly the start of agriculture. However, many researchers have rejected the idea that the jungle dryers forced hunter-gatherers to become farmers, or that the Natufians were precocious farmers themselves. One thing is for sure though, the Natufians would have inspired later generations to go that one step further, but more on that in a later episode. Further north, in southeastern Turkey, an archaeological site was discovered by a German archaeological team under Klaus Schmidt in 1996 uh, until his death in 2014. The site consisted of a tell that had a height of 50 meters with a diameter of approximately 300 meters. Dating to between 10,000 BC and 9,600 BC, Gebekli which means Potbelly Hill, is the oldest man-made place of worship yet discovered. At its early stage, the temple consisted of 10 to 30 meter diameter circular compounds with T-shaped pillars set within the interior walls of unworked stone. Many of the T-shaped limestone pillars contained carved reliefs of lions, bulls, boars, foxes, gazelles, and donkeys, as well as more exotic species such as snakes, spiders, and vultures. Still in a hunter-gatherer society, these people somehow organized themselves to find a way to cut through the limestone bedrock using only flint points and transport these 16-ton pillars from 330 feet below the hilltop, arranging them into a circular pattern for ritual use. Schmidt believed that this was a pilgrimage destination attracting people from as far as 160 kilometers away and that this was an example of the human sense of the sacred giving rise to civilization itself rather than ecological reasons. The site continues to puzzle and intrigue, uh, raising more questions than answers for archaeology and prehistory, with the result that our achievements will have to be revised and pushed back further in time, with each new discovery being made. So, Gebekli Tepe, look it up. It's very, very interesting. Around 9600 BC, the drought and cold conditions of the younger Dryas had come to an end. A popular camping site near a spring at the Jordan River had already been established by the Natufians. Once conditions improved, the Natufians decided to extend their stay, eventually leading to year-round habitation and settlement. Still living in semi-subterranean stone structures, these people would sow the seeds for a much larger settlement in years to come that would subsequently become famous in the Old Testament of the Bible. 
that settlement would be called Jericho, the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. Next time, Jericho will continue to grow under a new culture that will usher in the Neolithic area. Gebekli Tepe undergoes a transformation from its initial roots. Europe continues under the Mesolithic age with new sites appearing in the UK. And North America sees the successor to the Clovis culture. That and much more in episode 75 of the Fan of History podcast where we will cover 9000 to 8000 BC. You can reach me on Twitter at Dan Horning. Uh, you should check out the Fan of History YouTube channel and like it. If you like what we do and want to see this podcast continue, please become a patron at patreon.com slash fanofhistory. And yesterday I actually spoke to a new co-host, but I gave her some time to think about the offer as I will do these prehistory episodes first. Thank you for listening to the Fan of History podcast and see you next time. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.